Today on Something You Should Know, how did blue jeans become so fashionable and iconic all around the world? Then coincidences. Do they happen for a reason? Are they trying to tell us something? We love the romance of coincidences, but they are bound to happen. And it would always be an amazing coincidence if you went for 10, 15, 20 years and nothing really freaky or amazing happened to you in that time because something somewhere is destined to happen. Also, what's the difference between laughing and crying? Not much. And what makes you you? The atoms and molecules you're made from, where did they come from? There are atoms in your body that were once in dinosaurs, in pretty well any living thing you can think of, and they've eventually ended up in your body. It's about a 10-year cycle. Pretty well all of the atoms in your body will have been replaced in the last 10 years or so. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have a job opening and you need to hire someone, what are the chances, when you think about it, what are the chances of finding a great match inside your circle of influence? Pretty slim. I mean, even if you put the word out there, a lot of people who may be perfect are never going to hear about it. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that will help you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed does it all. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with these candidates faster. But it's not just about the speed, it's about the quality. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about Indeed is how efficient it is. You get quality candidates, you get them fast, and well, that's what it's all about. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, too. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. You know, it's amazing to think about how many men, women, boys, and girls all over the world wear blue jeans every day, or some kind of jeans every day. For the most part, blue jeans are thought of as all-American, although technically denim work clothes were worn in Europe over 200 years ago. In 1873, Levi Strauss came out with the first pair of American blue jeans. It was the copper rivets that made them unique and very durable. But how did work clothes become so fashionable? Well, jeans became fashionable because of Western movies. Now, the early movie cowboys wore a lot of fringe and frills. But in the 1930s and 40s, actors like John Wayne began wearing denim because they thought it was more authentic. And that started a fashion trend that continues till today. By the way, the most money ever paid for a pair of blue jeans was 
$532. It was paid by the Levi Strauss Company for a pair of miners' jeans from the 1880s. And that is something you should know. We humans like to know the reason why. When something happens, we want to know how come, what caused it. For example, why do coincidences happen? Why do traffic jams occur for no apparent reason? Why is it almost impossible to find a four-leaf clover in your front yard? (laughs) And why is it so hard to get the temperature of your shower just right? Well, you are about to get some answers to these and other interesting life questions from Rob Eastaway. He's the author of the book, Why Do Buses Come in Threes? The Hidden Mathematics of Everyday Life. Hi, Rob. Welcome. Thank you very much. So what is it about the number three? We hear all kinds of things that happen in threes. Why three? I think in life, there is lots of situations of the rule of three where, uh, I mean, comedians use it as well, actually. Um, First time something happens, okay, you register it. When it happens a second time, you think, oh, okay, I've noticed it's happened. When it happens a third time, as our brains are wired to think, right, there's a pattern here, something happening. So um, the third one is more significant. So when things happen in threes, generally, I think as humans, we are curious to know what's going on and we assume there's a cause even if there's not necessarily a cause interestingly if we talk about misfortunes in life you know unlucky things oh why do bad things always happen to me in threes i mean the truth is they don't but we'll tend to notice them when they happen in threes you know so a friend might get ill we might you know have some kind of uh, scrape on the car and then we're almost looking out for bad things to happen and we'll really notice that third thing and we'll reinforce this myth that bad things happen in threes. Well, yeah, there's that old thing about celebrity deaths always happen in threes, but they actually don't. Yeah. They, they don't, exactly. We're just reinforcing a myth we've all heard and it is just this innate way of, of humans counting um, of, uh, you know, three is enough to to be significant and to register in our brains. It's probably one of the most important numbers in terms of looking for things in life. So uh, things happening in threes is, is, yeah, is intriguing. Why is it so hard to find a four-leaf clover? It's a classic thing that uh, four-leaf clovers are the things you should be searching for. And in fact, if you look out in your yard or out in the park or whatever and are looking for flowers and count the petals or count the leaves on a daisy or whatever... There are certain numbers that seem to crop up far more often than others in leaves and petals. And a particularly common number is five, but quite often you'll see three. You might often see eight. You might see 13. And there's a connection between these numbers. And it's a sequence known as the Fibonacci sequence. And it was known about and discovered way back in the 12th, 13th century when an Italian mathematician who got nicknamed Fibonacci first published a story about it. But the pattern itself, you can recreate it by starting with the numbers one and one. You add them together, one and one makes two. Then you take the previous two numbers, so now one and two makes three, two and three makes five, Uh, three and five makes eight. So you can see how I'm making each number by just adding the previous two, and you could write this out, five and eight is 13. Now, for very subtle reasons, These Fibonacci numbers turn out to have particular properties that make them crop up in 
natural growing things in plants in particular in petals and uh, it's a wonderful thing so you know five tends to be the most common number of petals on a flower and the reason why it's five and not four or six is because five is a fibonacci number you're going to sort of have to take my word for it that fibonacci numbers are connected to another beautiful thing in math, which is known as the golden ratio, which is a particular shape of rectangle, a particular ratios of the two sides of a particular rectangle, which um, has some very lovely and elegant properties and was known about by Leonardo da Vinci. And he, I think, probably made it most famous, most popular. He experimented with it. He felt it was the source of the most beautiful shapes. He drew a famous image of a man, which was where every part of the body was in the ratio of this so-called golden ratio, which is about 1.6 something. And the reason why it's linked with nature is because it's such a an efficient ratio is a beautiful ratio. Plants make use of it to space out petals to give themselves the best chance to get as much sunlight as possible. And so four-leaf clovers then are just an anomaly. Yeah, if you found one, it's not a Fibonacci number, so nature isn't naturally going to produce things in fours unless it does so by splitting two twos, because two is a, an easy number to make, and it's also a Fibonacci number. So you say that it's better to buy a lottery ticket on Friday. I've 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 bought plenty of tickets every day of the week. They never they never win. So what what yeah. why why Friday? It's well, it does depend. I know lottery draws happen on different days of the week. So let's take the UK lottery where I know that the draw happens on Saturday. The idea is not so much there's anything special about buying on Friday, but to just recognize that lotteries uh, winning lotteries is extremely difficult. It is extremely unlikely you will win. And therefore, when something is so unlikely, you have to start thinking, well, look, what other things are more likely than this? And so if we go back to our original theme of buses, then um, uh, not very many people in a year are knocked over by a bus, but it's um, got a one in two million chance or whatever happening to you over a 24-hour period. It's probably rather less than that. But the point is, there comes a point where if you buy your lottery ticket too early, then you're more likely to meet some gruesome end, like being knocked over by a bus, than you are to actually make it as far as picking up your winning numbers. So the tip is to wait as long as possible to buy your ticket so that at least you have a chance of, if you do win it, of celebrating and, and enjoying the experience. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with increasing your chances. This just has the, to do with surviving to celebrate. Exactly. You can't increase your chances of winning a lottery. And well, you have Unless you buy lots of tickets, of course, the more tickets you buy, the more chance you have of winning. Although there is a tip for lotteries across the world, actually. One way of you, you won't increase your chance of winning, but if you do win, you want to win and not have to share the jackpot with lots of other people. So the idea is to pick numbers that other people don't pick. And it seems to be a curiosity of the way people are that our lucky numbers tend to be linked with things like birthdays and months of the year and so on. So there's a disproportionate number of people who pick numbers in the range 1 to 31, which is the maximum number of days there are in a month. Um, so if your lottery happens to include numbers that are higher than 31, then picking a smattering of numbers that are bigger than 31 
is good because it's numbers that are less likely to be picked by other people. So that's the that's the secret, really. The other thing to point out with lottery numbers is, you know, some selections of lottery numbers look random. You know, if I picked two, eight, 12, 21, 37, you might say, oh, yeah, that's good. That's nice and random. And if I picked one, two, three, four, five, six, you think, oh, that'll never turn up. Uh, I won't pick one with such a pattern. Well, the truth is, both of those uh, selections I just gave you are equally likely to happen. The reason why we never see one, two, three, four, five, six come up is that it's millions to one against that it will. But then it's also millions to one against that whatever I said, two, four, twelve, thirty-one would come up too. So we there's this sort of fallacy of thinking that certain patterns are more likely than others, whereas they're all equally likely. So you can improve your chances by simply trying to not think like all other people think. Uh, one other thing I would say to that, I mentioned, uh, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six is just as likely as any other combination. Um, there's a lot of mathematicians out there who know this and they think, I'm going to be smart because I know one, two, three, four, five, six is just as likely as anything else. So I will pick those numbers. The trouble is, if those numbers ever come up in a lottery anywhere in the world, there will be tens of thousands of smart people out there who did the same thing. So you'll end up sharing it with all those people and not getting much money yourself. So don't try to be too clever because there's other clever folk out there who will ruin it for you. We are talking about these fascinating little life questions and why they happen. And my guest is Rob Eastaway. He's author of the book, why do buses come in threes? The hidden mathematics of everyday life. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rob, what's the math behind why it is so hard to, like when you turn on the shower, to get, to get the temperature just right? It's either too hot and then it gets too cold. It's really hard to get it just right. The reason why... Uh, this is happening, you're getting this oscillating temperature, it's never right, is to do with uh, the way you're reacting to something that happened a few seconds ago. There's a bit of a time lag. You haven't waited until the right temperature got through the system. So hot and cold shower, or over hot and over cold showers, are, are part of a general phenomenon of, of systems and how systems behave and how we react to things. And um, it's a really interesting part of applied math because it explains a lot of what happens in the world. You know, we react to things thinking you start hearing uh, that uh, we're running 
low on toilet rolls because everyone's buying toilet rolls. So you go out and buy them and therefore other people start buying them. And, and suddenly the nation is short of toilet rolls as if there's a crisis. Well, actually, there's not a crisis. It's just we're reacting too quickly to something rather than letting the system settle down. So there's cause and effect and something that happens causes you to take another action, which happens to another action. All this knock on effect is fascinating to model and when you understand it and when you step back and look at the often mathematical relationship between the way things are going up and down and so on, it can help you to take cooler and more reasoned decisions by just saying, OK, let's look at the big picture here, not just at immediate things that I need to respond to straight away. Traffic jams I find interesting. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure why. I guess because, you know, so often traffic jams happen for no reason and then the traffic clears up and it's very frustrating. Why, why, why does that happen? Who screwed this up? I imagine there's some interesting math or physics or something going on there. It's because of a knock-on effect of you reacting to the person in front of you. You react too quickly and you put your brakes on too fast. The car behind catches up with you. And it can, in the wrong circumstances, just cause all the cars to stop. The ones at the front then start going again and they lead off and you can watch from the air it looks like this pulse is passing through the cars um as if it knows what's going on but actually this is just individual humans re the way they react causing the whole system to uh, flow or, or not flow um which is why sometimes we need traffic signals to tell us what to do to control us to say don't try driving too fast because if you all try and drive too fast ironically you might all end up going much slower because you have a knock-on effect on each other. Well, something I've always wondered about that, I, I, I've been stuck in traffic jams, as I'm sure everyone has, where you're, you're kind of creeping along for a long time. And, and there's no reason for it. There's no accident. There's no nothing. But at some point, it does just open up. And mm. why does it open up there? What, what happened that all of a sudden now we can all go? There's so many things that, that could be causing it, but it might have been a temporary thing that caused a driver near the front of what became the jam to slow down slightly. Um, bizarrely, sometimes it's seeing an accident or seeing a, a police car that's pulled up or whatever. People stop to look. Um, uh, but as soon as one person has slowed down, that pulse of slowing down is going to feed all the way back. But of course, the person at the front is now free to go again. Nothing ever, nothing ever physically stopped them. They just maybe slowed down a little bit. So I think very often it will be caused by one individual not driving smoothly, just just slowing down for whatever reason. They might have been reaching over for a coffee cup or who knows what reason. The knock-on effect of that can escalate. So eventually behind them, some people stop. But of course, we can see that that guy at the front never had anything that was actually stopping them. So we're just releasing the pressure out again at the front and it works its way back through the jam. So I want to change topics here and talk about coincidences because I think they're so interesting because everybody experiences in their life amazing coincidences and I think it's very human to want to find an explanation. Why did that happen? What does that mean? And so what does that mean? Well, yeah, we, we love coincidences. And I think most people have had some amazing coincidence happen to them. Um, I've had several. I think one that sticks in my mind was a time when I was with 
a friend and her daughter was there and I was drawing a little picture for the daughter and I drew a moon in the sky and I, I was making it up as I went along. I said, oh, you can tell from the moon that the date must be August the 17th. I just completely made that up out of nowhere. I don't know why I even said it. And the mother said, I can't believe you just said that because August the 17th is our daughter's birthday and it's my birthday and it's my husband's birthday. And there was this like cold shudder of how this is just amazing. It was meant to be. And when we when we hear coincidences, it comes back to this cause and effect thing. We assume there was a reason why this happened, uh, something psychic, something whatever. Um, but actually, the thing about coincidences, they are going to happen by chance. And one way to look at coincidences is to say, look, how many opportunities are there for a coincidence to happen in a day? Uh, and you imagine, you know, I came home from work and um, uh, just as I got home, I saw someone and, oh, their name was completely different from mine and their number plate, oh, was completely unrelated to mine. So lots of non-coincidences are happening all the time. We don't notice them. And, you know, they happen in the hundreds and thousands and millions over a year. So many chances for coincidences to happen. We just don't notice the boring things where two unconnected things came together. When suddenly they're lined up, two names are the same. It's a neighbor we see when we're on holiday, you know, someone in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I wasn't expecting to see you here. We notice those and, um, and they freak us out. We love the romance of coincidences, but they are bound to happen. And it would almost be an amazing coincidence if you went for 10, 15, 20 years and nothing really freaky or amazing happened to you in that time because something somewhere is destined to happen just like rolling dice and getting three sixes come up. My favorite coincidence example, sometimes math will actually throw up examples which uh, give coincidences more often than you'd expect. Um, and that is what's sometimes called the birthday paradox. You imagine you're in a group of 30 people, which is about the size of a typical class at school or whatever. And you think, okay, well, I wonder what the chances are that in that group of 30, two people have the same birthday. And there are 365 days in a year. So you'd think, well, 30 people out of 365, two with the same birthday. It kind of feels like a one in 10 thing. It doesn't sound like it's likely at all because that's not many people and that's a lot of birthdays. Now, I'm going to state to you the fact, that, which, is, which is extremely counterintuitive. If there are 30 people in a room, then there's a way higher than 50-50 chance. It's like a 60% chance that there will be at least two people in that room who have the same birthday. And I do this as a little stunt if I've got a big audience. If I've got 50 or more people, I'll say, I feel an energy coming from you as a room. I think two of you got the same birthday and uh, I don't know who it is, but I can, I can sense it now. And I go around the room and it always works. And the reason why it works, you think how many different combinations there are of those 30 people. There's there's 29 people could be paired with Annie and another 28 could be paired with Bert and so on. You add them all up and think, actually, there's hundreds of different possible pairs in this room. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised if one of those pairs of all this combination do have the same birthday. So it's the law of numbers and big numbers. In the end, coincidences happen. But in the end, as a coincidence uh, phenomenon, it's one of my favorites because it feels so surprising. 
and you can do it as a as a little stunt at parties or whatever i bet there's two people in this room have the same birthday and you can win bets on it it's great fun talk about that black and white hat game that you play that because i've been thinking about it ever since i read about it it's really interesting there's a little game i play where i have two volunteers come and sit face facing each other on chairs in front of an audience and i have in a bag three hats two of them are black hats and one of them is a white hat and then coming from behind each of my volunteers so they can't see i put a hat on each of them so they can't see what hats on their own head but they can see what hat is on the other person's head and what they don't know is i put a black hat on each of their heads so remember there were two black hats one white hat and they're sitting there looking at the other person they can see a black hat and i say right uh, I want you to put your hand up. Who will be the first of you who can predict with pure logic what hat is on your own head? Now, this is a, a quite famous puzzle, but I love what happens in the real world because with most adults in the real world, what they do is they look at the other person. They think, right, they're wearing a black hat. I know there were two blacks and one white. So I'm either wearing a white or a black and I don't know which it is. And both of them think that way. And you can wait for 30 seconds, a minute, and they just sit there saying, I just don't know. But actually, what they should be able to do, if they think about it a bit further, is think, well, what is the other person thinking? If you go the extra step and say, let's suppose I've got a white hat on. There's only one white hat. The guy opposite is not stupid. So if they can see a white hat, they'll put their hand up and say, I must be wearing a black hat. That has not happened why has that not happened? The only reason it has not happened over the last 30 seconds is because I must be wearing a black hat. So it should be possible to deduce that you're wearing a black hat in that game. And the puzzle books say that's what happens. The real life says it very rarely happens. And I just find that fascinating. And there's a broader principle of logic and life and statistics that I find really interesting with that game because often we can deduce things not just from what we're told, but also from what we're not told. Well, this has been really fun, and, and it's answered some questions that I think everybody has, because all these things happen to all of us, and we always wonder why, and, and now we know why. Rob Eastaway has been my guest. He's author of the book, Why Do Buses Come in Threes? The Hidden Mathematics of Everyday Life. And you will find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you for coming on here, Rob. Thanks, Mike. That's been really fun. If I were to ask you, where do you come from? You'd probably say, from your parents. They made you. And that's sort of right, but it's only part of the answer, according to Brian Clegg. Brian is a science writer who's written several popular science books, including What Do You Think You Are? The Science of What Makes You, You which is what he's here to talk about. Hi, Brian. So generally, when we talk about people, we talk about who we are, not what we are. So this is kind of a, this is really kind of an interesting way to come at this, to talk about the atoms and the molecules and the cells that make up what we are. I, I think it's just fascinating what human beings are. You know, our brains are incredibly complex things, the most complex thing we know in the universe. Uh, and basically, you know, it's us. It's where we came from. Everybody's interested in, in where you come from yourself. 
I wanted to find stuff out for myself and hoped I could put this across. So when you ask people, you know, where do you come from? What are you made of? You know, you usually get the answers of, you know, evolution. I came from my parents. I'm, you know, a result of the two of them. And I'm, is our general understanding of who we are close to accurate or are we way off? I don't think it's inaccurate. It's more that we just see a tiny part of the picture uh, so that it's not just about your parents. It's not just about your family tree, but it's also the chemical elements that make you up, which came from stars. It's about how the Earth was formed billions of years ago, and pretty well all the atoms that are in your body were already there on the Earth when it formed. It's about all sorts of things that have come together to make you the u- unique person that you are. So since you mentioned that, you know, it, we come from the stars, that's a pretty provocative idea. So so explain so explain that. Explain where what we are, what makes us. Sure. Well, we're made up of atoms, and those atoms have been here, as I say, for the life of the Earth. Before that, they were floating around in space, and they either came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, uh, when the hydrogen in the universe was first formed, or what's happened is stars are really great big factories for turning small atoms into bigger ones. And over time, these stars make the heavier atoms explode as they get old, and those atoms are sent flying across the universe and eventually came together to make first Earth. And eventually you, after those atoms have been in other plants, other animals, you know, for instance, that there are atoms in your body that were once in dinosaurs, in pretty well any living thing you can think of, and they've eventually ended up in your body. How? How did they get there? Atoms get into us simply by us eating. Uh, So we will eat stuff, we will breathe stuff in. uh, Those atoms are out there and they get incorporated into our body as we grow. Over time, all the atoms in your body pretty well will get replaced. It's about a 10-year cycle that pretty well everything in your body gets replaced. Some of it's a lot quicker, uh, but we pretty well all of the atoms in your body will have been replaced in the last 10 years or so. Well, that brings up a question that I've, I never have gotten a really good answer to and that I've wondered. You, okay, so you say that the atoms get replaced every 10 years or so, but I've also heard people say that you slough off cells and that you're a different person every couple of months. So can you reconcile that for me? Well, I, bits of you are changing all the time. Uh, some of the things that change fastest, for instance, are the red blood cells in your body. They don't last very long at all. And they only last a day or two. Uh, and the skin cells, as you say, are always coming off your hair. Uh, other parts of your body do eventually come off. But if you look through the whole body, if you think, for instance, of your bones, they're some of the things that take longest for this, uh, the atoms in them to be replaced. Um, but over time, this all happens. So the different parts are, are being replaced over different timescales. And how are, are humans unique? Are we so different than other creatures? Are we, if you under the microscope, are we all more or less the same? In some ways, we are. I mean, if you look at genetics, for instance, the, the, the gene that defines really how uh, an animal is or plant is put together, then we aren't hugely different from some of the other animals. We're only a few uh, small percentage points different from other apes. Uh, and even with something like, say, a banana, uh, there's maybe 50% of the genes are duplicated. 
But it's not just about genetics. Uh, one of the huge things that make, makes us very different from the other animals is those brains I mentioned. Ours are far more complex uh, than other animals' brains. And as far as we're aware, there aren't other animals that do many of the things with those brains that we can. So they, they don't create stories. They don't create technology. Yes, they might have little tools and things, use a piece of wood or something like that. But we're on a totally different scale to any other animal that we know. Is there a good understanding of what it means to be alive? You know, we're, we're this pile of atoms that came from dinosaurs in outer space. But so is, I imagine, so is a rock. But the rock just sits there. We're alive. So what's the difference? That is a really good question because, to be honest, exactly pinning down what life is, is something that science really hasn't entirely managed to do. So biologists will tell you that life involves various processes. Uh, so living things typically will grow, uh, they eat, uh, consume things to produce energy, uh, they give off waste, uh, they reproduce. Uh, and all these things come together to make something that's living. But actually saying what, what's that spark, if you like, what the thing that makes the difference between something that's living and something that isn't living really is quite difficult to pin down. Uh, one of the things that some scientists are starting to look at is the way we deal with energy, that living things can effectively push themselves away from their natural state because of the way they use energy, whereas, say, a rock just kind of sits there and is a rock. So there are differences, but they're really quite difficult to pin down. Yeah, well, I imagine if anyone could pin that down, I mean, that would unlock a lot of mysteries to if we had some understanding of what it meant to be alive. It, it definitely would. And it's also more than that with us because we know we're, we're conscious, for instance, we, we take in the world around us. But that also is a real mystery of what consciousness is, of what it is that makes us able to have that feeling of being alive, of relating to the world around us in the way that perhaps um, a slug might not, for instance, or a fly or something like that. Well, that was going to be my next question is, you know, what does it mean to think like to, to be conscious? What does that even mean? But I guess that's a piece of what does it mean to be alive? That's right, but it's a very special piece. What we do know is that not everything we do is about consciousness. I don't know if you are a touch typist. I know a lot of people are where they can sit and type uh, without looking at the keyboard. I can do that. And I can type the letter H, say, but I don't know where the letter H is on the keyboard. If you ask me, I cannot tell you where it is. I can just type it because it's not really a conscious action. Or if you drive a car, there's a lot of things you do when you're driving that you don't actually have to think about, oh, I've got to uh, push this lever, I've got to turn this. It just happens as you go because we push it out of our consciousness. And a lot of things that we do aren't consciously controlled. But there is this consciousness. There's something there, apparently. Some, some scientists actually believe there isn't really a consciousness, that it's only, uh, uh, if you like, a, an appearance of being conscious. But I think the majority would still sort of say there's something there, and it's one of the biggest mysteries in science still today. Well, that's part of that, I guess, part of that conversation of, you know, do we really have free will? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, because that makes a huge difference. Because if we don't have free will, is it really fair, for instance, to punish somebody for something they do if they have no control over that? 
I think most of us would like to think there is such a thing as free will, but it is really difficult to pin down when you look at where is that coming from? Where is it happening? Where's that free will actually based? Uh, and what is makes it happen? Isn't that weird, though, to think that there might be a possibility that this is all programmed out and that that you really are not a participant, you're just a like a chess piece? Well, that's right. It goes back really all the way back to Isaac Newton, who had this idea of the universe being a little bit like clockwork, where you know everything happens. And in principle, uh, there's a French scientist called Laplace who said, uh, you know, if I knew everything about the way everything's put together, I should be able to predict everything perfectly into the future, exactly what will happen with everything. Now, actually, modern science says it's not that simple because quantum physics tells us that there's a lot of probability going on, that things don't just necessarily go one way or the other. It's only there's a chance it'll do one thing, a chance it'll do another. But even so, it's easy to think of this picture of the world where everything relates to each other, everything goes forward like clockwork. And if that were the case, then really you aren't controlling what happens. It's just what will happen. So I, I like to think we got free will. I hope you do too. Yeah, I do. But but you also have to wonder why some things happen. You know, the, we just mm-hmm. it's everybody has those experiences in life that are either amazingly lucky or amazingly unlucky, or you just happen to do the right thing. And you have to wonder. Is it just, you know, chance, random chance that sooner or later that's going to happen? Or is there a bigger picture here? I certainly think there's, there is a lot that is about luck. So if you think of what makes us what we are in terms of, is it our nature? Is it the way that we're actually made uh, genetically? Or is it nurture? Is it our environment? Then there's a lot of evidence that it is random factors in the environment that have a huge impact on the way things turn out. You can be, you know, a great writer, but never have the look to have your book read by the right people. So it gets published. You can be a great inventor and come up with a great idea. But the fact is, it never gets out there in the world. Or you can be extremely lucky, make a guess on the stock market, make yourself a millionaire. And the fact is uh, that a lot of that influence is outside random inference, influence, luck, things that will change your life and the way you develop. You know, I so often think about what you just said about you hear stories like J.K. Rowling writing Harry Potter and and being turned down by all those publishers. And if she had given up, we would have never heard of Harry Potter. And I think how many times has that happened where the person did give up or they, they just hit a brick wall? And how many things do we never know that could have been wonderful, but we'll never know? Well, that's right. I think that's happening an awful lot because in the end, the stories we hear about are the ones where it does turn out well in the end. You know, you hear about the lottery winner, not the millions of people who had lottery tickets and didn't win. (laughs) Right. And it's the same with life, I think. When you look at this, after you write a book like this and and your other book as well, but when when you, you know, close close the cover of the book and sit back and take a deep breath, what's the most fascinating part of this to you? Uh, the thing that really gets to a lot of us has to be, you know, our place in the universe in a way, uh, whether you're talking about if you have a, a religious view, if you are thinking about, you know, us as being a very small thing in a very big universe. Uh, it's, it's that kind of how we, if you can find out more about what we are as an individual, how we then fit into that bigger picture. 
I guess is one picture part of it. And for me, the other bit is this nature versus nurture thing. You know, I got kids uh, thinking about how much do I influence how they are as they become adults and how much is that coming from their genes? How much is it coming from the wider environment? So if you have kids, I, I guess that has to be one of the big things that it makes you think about. So, Brian, when you look at human life today, I mean, how are we doing? How, I'm sure life is better than it used to be, but, but is it continuing to get better? Yeah, I mean, as you say, if you compare with, frankly, practically any period in the past, if you go back 100 years, you go back a couple of hundred years, most people had pretty bad lives. You know, there were people who were rich, there were people who uh, could afford the the kind of things we take for granted now in terms of cleanliness, food, and all that kind of thing. But for most people, it was a pretty awful life. Uh, so it, it's difficult to say, really. And we also have to remember that we are evolving. You know, human beings are not exactly the same now as when they first formed about 200,000 years ago. We are evolving. Things are changing, both in us as people and in our world around us. So you certainly can't see, you know, the whole thing will never freeze. It will always be changing. Which makes you wonder, what will we be like in 200,000 years from now? It does. Uh, I, th I think what's certainly true is the, the pictures, if you remember any of the old movies from the 50s, uh, where you had kind of aliens with big bulging brains sticking out of their heads, that kind of thing. That's not going to happen. You know, evolution doesn't work like that. It, you're not going to get a huge brain evolving. Uh, but the fact is, we do change. Uh, in small ways, sometimes, you know, little things like, for instance, the fact that most of us in the West can uh, consume milk. Uh, and that is a mutation. We are mutants. It's not just a matter of the X-Men and movies like that. We are all mutants. Every individual has a slight mutation, slight changes in their genes from their parents, from the people around them. And over time, that does result in various changes. Uh, again, I've, I've got red hair. Uh, red hair, well, I used to have, uh, red hair is, is, again, a mutation. It's, it now didn't exist at one point, but we've changed. And so the subtle changes that come over time, but over a long time span, we can expect bigger ones. We just don't know what they'll be. Yeah. Well, I always think of that, that chart in science class of, you know, on the left is the monkey, and then, you know, the next guy's a little more upright, and then pretty soon, six guys later, there's a man standing there. Well, what are the next six going to look like? What's that 12th guy going to look like? Well, the interesting thing about that is it's kind of a myth, that diagram, because it, it kind of shows the idea that people will get more and more evolved in a particular way. So evolution isn't something that has a, an end in mind. It's not saying this is the way to better. So, for example, uh, we know that there were smaller people uh, that were called sometimes referred to as hobbits, uh, on uh, uh, an island in the, I think it's in Indonesia, um, where people actually evolved to be smaller and have smaller brains than they, their predecessors had. So evolution isn't always about getting bigger and better. It's fitting better into your environment. And the fact is, the way we go will be influenced by our environment and how that changes. So given that we do know what we're made of and where we came from, is there any, can you take that information and project into the future what's to come? I'm always a bit wary of futureology, this idea that you can somehow look into the future. Uh, there was a book back in, I think it was 1970, uh, 
that um, tried to show the way that the world was going to develop. And it was really big back then. Um, and we often get these books coming along that say, this is the way things are going. And I think that's almost impossible to predict. There are so many factors coming in there. But I do think what will happen is that we find out more, then we can also understand more what goes together to make a person the person they are. Do, we, do you think we're, in terms of understanding that, are we just barely breaking the surface or do we know a lot already and we just need to fill in a few blanks? There's an awful lot that we don't know, I think it's fair to say, because human beings, anything living, is actually a really complicated system, a really complicated thing. Um, my background is originally physics. And when I say to people, physics is actually much, much simpler than biology. Uh, often they say, that's not true. You know, physics has all that math. It's really complicated. And yes, there is quite a lot of mathematics in there. But the actual basics of physics is really, really simple. But a biological system, a, per a person, an animal, a plant, when you look down into the detail of what's happening in every single cell in your body, each one of them is like a, a huge tiny factory that's been a huge factory that's been compressed into a tiny tiny space so there's all sorts of stuff going on in your cells the, there's long strings of dna in there controlling what's happening there are lots of little tiny machines made of molecules uh, that do things inside the cell that enable it to split that enable it to process energy and all that's going on inside us it's incredibly complicated what's going on there's lots more to find out on the physical side of what's in your body but also, as I say, things like consciousness is generally described as one of the most complicated and as yet unknown things that we want to find out more about. So there's loads to find out more about, but we are getting there. We are getting more every year. I remember hearing someone say that, you know, uh, I think you were talking about a moment ago, uh, these mutations that, that we never used to have people with blue eyes. And if you have blue eyes, you are related to the first guy or whoever that was woman that had blue eyes is is uh, is that usually true are that were those mutations all kind of run in the family mostly yeah i mean you can have the same mutation happening in two different places but often you can trace that whole thing back and in fact family trees work like this as well we used to trump family trees as being you know a little thing you do your genealogy look, you look back a few generations but you only have to go back uh, I think it's about 30 or so generations, 37, I think. And there were, would be more people in your family tree than have ever lived. Because if you think about it, each generation, there's twice as many people. So you've got two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. And very quickly, that's, that's a huge number. And the fact is, actually, what happens is a family tree becomes a really tangled thing into the past, something where everything is interlocked. And it's been shown statistically that you only have to go back maybe about a thousand years or so and pretty well everybody in your area, in your continent, that has a living uh, descendant. So somebody from back there who has somebody living and everybody still here will be related to that person. So it means, for instance, that everybody has royalty in their family tree. Uh, if you think, you know, it's something just the Europeans do or whatever, the fact is everybody in the world will have royalty in their family tree. Because if you go back far enough, whatever region they've originally come from, then descendants of those royal characters will still be around today and you will be one of them. 
This may be a bit of an unfair question, but since you've done all this research and you've really looked into what we are, what we're made of, how we're made, does it give you any sense of of why we're here? And, and, and also, like, are we that unique? Are humans so unique or, or is life on planet Earth so unique that there is or isn't likely life elsewhere on other planets? Some people think there are very few planets in the whole universe, or certainly in the galaxy, our galaxy, that have life on them because it is so unlikely that life would have come together the way it did. It's really quite difficult to start things off. As far as we were aware, in the whole four and a half billion years Earth has been here, life only started once from scratch and everything else has come from that. So it's not something that seems to happen all the time. Um, and because of that, uh, it seems relatively unlikely that life would evolve on any particular planet. Um, and so we, we are probably something of a rarity. And you also have to think, okay, can you think of a reason why there might be something so unlikely? And one obvious answer is if you do have a religious belief, then, then that was as a result of some greater cause. But as I say, some people do think that, you know, in the end, even if something's very unlikely, the unlikely thing has to have happened for us to be here. It's something called the anthropic principle. If we weren't here, we wouldn't be able to say, oh, this is unlikely. So the unlikely thing has to have happened because we're here to see it. Well, this is one of those conversations that really makes you think about everything. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. My guest has been Brian Clegg. He is a science writer who's written several science books. And his latest is... What do you think you are? The science of what makes you, you. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for coming on, Brian. Okay, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. You know, there's a fine line between laughing and crying. You can even do both of them at the same time. The late psychologist Robert R. Provine explained that laughing and crying are similar psychological reactions. Both occur during states of high emotional arousal. Both laughter and tears have some lingering effects. And neither one can be sincerely turned on or off at will. Human tears are actually triggered by a variety of emotions, pain, sadness, and even joy. And if you can manage to laugh and cry simultaneously, you're actually getting a double dose of stress relief. Both emotional outbursts counteract the effects of cortisol and adrenaline. So go ahead, laugh till you cry or cry till you laugh. And that is something you should know. If you find yourself with a free moment or two and would like to do something to support this podcast... Leaving us a rating and or review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts would be greatly appreciated. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.